verse 1 through verse 12. So if you want to turn there, that's good. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass as the flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come here this morning as your people and know truly you care. Sing that song, Father, that we are a child of God. And Father, I thank you Lord, you were made perfect in him. Father, there's nothing that we've done or any that we are to deserve your grace. Father, your grace is free and it is given to us. And we thank you, Lord, that this morning we can come in and we can hear your word read to us. Help us to be grateful, Father. Help us to realize that you truly do love us and that you are with us. Lord, we pray that you would remove all distractions from us. Father, that we would focus on you, focus on your words, and we pray that you would be with us and guide us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Pray, Lord, that you would bless and Father, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Lord, make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. time we were, last time I spoke, we started the book of James, and uh, we got halfway through verse 1, and uh, I told you we'd finish verse 1 today, and we will, and Lord willing, we'll get through, all the way through verse 12. Putting faith to work in your life has more to do with how you respond to trouble than perhaps anything else. So it's really no wonder, as we come to this little book of James, the letter of James, James begins to challenge the believer to bring his faith down to earth, making our faith real. That he immediately launches into giving us the trouble or the truth about trouble, the truth about trials. 
it's easy sometimes as we look at the letter of James and we come to this to overlook the last half of verse 1. The tribes and the dispersions. Who the 12 tribes and the dispersions. The, the word there, dispersion, refers to James or Jews living outside of the land of Palestine. The word dispersed can be translated scattered like seed that is scattered by a farmer's hand. More specifically to, to James's audience, many of these Jews had been scattered because of persecution. Claudius, the Roman emperor, was driving out the Jews into exile. And under the Jews, the rule of the Jews, uh, were driven out the homeland and even out into Rome. Life was threatening and, and unsafe. But the Jews that had begun following Jesus was really in the double trouble. Because being a Jew, they were hated by the Gentiles. And being Jew, as a Christian, they were hated by their own people. Everything had changed for them. They were literally, literally scattered, forced to leave their homes and run for their lives to the nearest city or village. You know how hard it is to move if you've done it before. The difficulties, the stress. I've done it a couple of times. One was a wife who's about 36 weeks pregnant moving across the country recently. And it's stressful. It can be a lot. Again, and, and that's just, and it goes a lot into moving. There's planning, packing, the stress, the hours, the questions, and that's moving when you've already picked a date. What if you heard on the evening news that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is no longer allowed to live in Marshall County, and that all Christians have under the penalty of death an hour in which to leave their home in the county? Imagine throwing everything that you can get your hands on into boxes and suitcases and running literally for your life. But when you read the words, the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion, behind those words are volumes of trouble, stress, questions, and suffering. Maybe that's why James skips right to the point in the letter without even hardly saying hello. He dives right into the letter and he tells them, about the trials that are to come and that they're facing and what to do and how to handle them. Verse three or verse two, account it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This verse gets my attention right from the start because this isn't usually how one responds to difficult times. Especially when you consider who he is writing to. He is writing to Christians who have are beaten or have been beat up and discouraged. Christians who have already been through persecution and more to follow. If he had told us to, in trials, to be aggravated, to frustrated, ticked off, or bitterness, to have bitter, I could probably skip right through these verses, but to have joy. We have to understand when we look at this what James is not saying. James is not saying that we should be happy about every situation. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is a state of mind and soul. The Bible tells us to grieve with those who grieve. Jesus talked about this, his heart being troubled and he, and he wept for the sister of, sisters of Lazarus at the tomb. There are losses and situations 
situations that rightly bring sorrow to our heart. And James is not saying that we should never be sad. The word here, counts, consider or counts, is a financial term. It means to calculate, to reckon, to total up or to evaluate. The Christian who understands that he is a slave to God, James 1 verse 1, can have joy when surrounded by trouble because he lives for the things that matter most. His evaluation, the way he totals up life, his, his values are radically different now, but he lives for God's glory. In fact, the, the believer understands that trials have value. James will show us that here in a little bit, but trials can shape us into the character no wonder Satan wants trials to defeat us while God is using trials to develop us. And the slave of God, as the slaves of God, we know as master and that God is ultimately in control. I like how someone wrote, someone said this, Satan may turn up the heat, but God has his hand on the it's that kind of trust, that kind of submission as slaves of God that we evaluate trouble for a joyful instead of a controlling or a resentful spirit. I can't think of a better illustration than that of Joseph in the book of Genesis. By the world's evaluation or reckoning, he had every reason to grow bitter and angry and to live in constant his brothers sold him to slavery. He lost his youth. He, he has been separated from his family. He grew up in a strange land. He was sold as a slave to a man who finally showed him mercy and gave him a better job managing his household. But then his boss, his wife, accused him of attempted rape, and he was sent to prison, though innocent. He interpreted while in prison the dream of a cupbearer who, when he got out of prison, according to Joseph's interpretation, forgot about Joseph and left him there. And for years, Joseph remained in prison. And by every stretch of the imagination, Joseph should have come out of prison angry and bitter toward people and, and toward God. He had not gotten a fair shake in years. He had been surrounded by trouble, and, and no one really seemed to care. Yet he emerges from the shadow of prison with grace and faith. Why? Because he had come to believe that God had orchestrated everything according to his plan, which meant years of suffering. God views our life the way you view a movie after you've read the book. When something bad happens, you feel the air sucked out of the theater. Everyone else, everyone else gasps at the crisis on the screen, but not you. Why? Because you've read the book. You know how the good guy gets out of the tight situation. And God views your life the same consequence. He's not only read your story, his perspective is different and his purpose is clear. 
when we look at this, uh, I see a few truths about trials here in this verse. One is that trials are unavoidable. James did not say here, count it joy if you enter and go into trials when you have trials. He says, not if, but when. In the very outset of the issue, James is telling us all that we are to expect from trouble, from trials. Trials are a given. In fact, you don't have to, to go looking for problems. They will find you all by themselves. There are people that are, that are out there that will say, in order to miss trials or not go through trials or trouble, you just really need to have enough faith. Whatever trouble you're having will go away. If you're really following Jesus, trials and tribulation will become a thing of the past. You'll live on the mountaintop. You'll have health and wealth. Your dreams will come true. You'll have job, the perfect job, the perfect relationships. Just have enough faith. Trust God. But that's not at all what James is saying here. He is not saying if, but when you enter into trials and counter meet trials. It would make a lot of sense to us if he said, count it all joy when you escape those trials. That would seem to connect better with the idea of being joyful, but joy is certainly the absence of trials, right? If you're a slave of God, you want to obey your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely trials become a thing of the past. But Jesus said this in his own words. He says that in this world you will have tribulation, John sixteen thirty three. He said to his disciples, every day has its share of trouble in Matthew 6. And Paul told his converts in Acts 14, 22, that we will that we will through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. So not only do we see that trials are unavoidable, but they're also unlimited. That's what it says here, the various trials, that you meet various trials. The Greek word there, various, uh, gives us the term of polka dot. In other words, the life of a Christian will literally be spotted, dotted, speckled, splattered with trials of every conceivable size and shape. You can translate it with the multi translate it multicolored. In other words, that trials come in all types of packages, shapes, and sizes. They may involve health, your finances, your relationships, your job, your past, your hopes, your children, and on and on. Trials are unavoidable, they're unlimited, and thirdly, they're also unexpected. That's what it says. It's counted all joy when you meet various trials. That word meet, encounter, or encounter is translated in the King James Version to fall into. I believe it paints a more accurate picture here, word picture of what's happening, of unexpected suddenness. It's a word that's only used twice in the entire New Testament. Once in Acts 27, where the ship carrying the Apostle Paul unexpectedly encounters a sandbar and begins to break apart. And the other place is found in Luke 10, where the Lord is telling a parable of a man who was traveling to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, and he encountered thieves. Suddenly, without warning, this man is surrounded by trouble, by trials, no way to escape. 
In fact, I find it interesting that this word is translated into the phrase charismos, which is linked to purist, which means attacker. It's actually where we get our word pirate from. It creates an even more clearer image of a sudden appearance of a pirate ship next to yours. I mean, you're just sailing along and, and minding your own business, and all of a sudden the shadow falls across your deck. You look over and there is a pirate ship. Before you know it, they have overthrown your ropes. They fastened your ship to theirs. And there you are, unarmed, unprepared, unsuspecting. You're suddenly in the clutches of the pirates of trials of tribulation. Surely James will just tell us to sell away. Or maybe tell us how to escape. Dad tells us how we are to encounter him. He says here, uh, the, the word here for steadfastness is a compound word that means to stay under, or the ability to abide under pressure. James says, I want you to know that when, you, when your faith is stretched and challenged, the end result is endurance, toughness like lungs that have been developed through exercise, you're able to stay underwater longer, you're able to run longer. James says we must remember that faith is developed by having to exercise that faith. Think about a child learning to ride a bicycle. It's a difficult process. Usually there are tumbles as they try to find their balance, learn how to pedal, learn how to apply the brakes. If a parent never lets go of the bicycle, the child may never fall. But they will also never find their balance. They would never enjoy riding with their friends. They will never know the wonderful sense of freedom. A person can view learning to ride a bicycle as too dangerous. Or they can recognize that this great news of the price the same way with faith. For our faith to grow, we need to face situations that have the potential to bruise us and to skin our knees. We need to face times when we are forced to learn how to trust Him. And you see here, toward the end of verse 4, it says, let endurance have its perfect or complete result steadfastness, that is, or endurance, have its completed result. The word translated there, perfect, refers to having an undivided relationship with Christ. A pure relationship with Him with undivided affection. You're His slave, remember verse 1. In the midst of suffering, everything the world clamors for suddenly becomes nonsense. The Apostle Paul calls it garbage. All of your clinging to the world, all of your clinging to self, all of your clinging to temporal things begins to lose grip in your life when your focus turns to Christ and His sufficiency. James says, in effect, trials produce a single-minded affection for Christ. And he goes on by saying that endurance or steadfastness of trials also produces a perfect maturity. 
By the the way, James used this word complete, mature, more than any other New Testament instance. Maturity isn't about your age. It's about your perspective. It isn't about what you know, but what you do with what you know. A mature believer is consistent in their walk, focused on honoring Christ. And as a result, they bear much spiritual fruit. Trials are not electives in God's spirit of school mature of spiritual maturity. They are required courses. And James A. Garfield, the president of Parham College, he he, uh, a man brought his son for admission as a student and asked if he might be possible if it might be possible for the young student to be given an easier courses rather than more difficult ones. The father told Garfield, the boy can never take all that coursework in. He wants to get through quicker. Can you arrange it for him? Mr. Garfield, a minister, educator, said, oh yes, we can take a short course. It all depends on what you want to make of it. When God wants to make an oak, he takes a hundred years. When he but when he takes, but when he only takes two months to make a spark. God doesn't send us down difficult roads to make our life miserable. He does so to grow us into mature believers. I like how one author put it. He says, we will never grow to full height of all that God has planned for us if we bask in the sunshine. James knew that this was going to, there are questions. James knew that this was, people here were going to have questions. They were going to have, well, why? Why is this happening? How are we to get through this? And then we see here in the next verses, five and following, we see that he answers them. Just like Job, I, I'm actually, in my Bible reading, uh, Bible reading plan, finishing up this year and it's finishing up in the book of Job and I was reminded as I was reading that of the suffering in his life and and the pain that Job went through the questions that Job had and in Job 28 we see Job doing what? Asking for wisdom in the midst of his trials asking that God would give him wisdom and knowing how to handle it and like Job we're going to need wisdom to get past the hammer of God to see the hand of God at work. We're going to need wisdom to believe that the presence of trials doesn't mean that God has disappeared. A sign of spiritual maturity is the wisdom to know how to rest even when God seems absent. And James knows that every one of us needs that kind of growth that we don't understand what do we do when he just clearly says ask and I like what it says here he says all go ahead and, and ask God who gives to all he doesn't play favorites he doesn't say you're, you're not one of the, my top students you're, you're not one of the top you, you, 
he, he just simply says all. And, and I love the next, but it continues to go. It could just stop there. He just gives to all, but he, he adds something here. Gives to all generously and without reproach. That is, without insult. Never holds anything over you. God never says, you need wisdom for that. God never says, you, again, coming back. He simply, joyfully gives if we ask. Notice what James does not say. If any man lacks knowledge, let him ask of God. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is... It's, it's facts, it's data that you learn. Wisdom is knowing how to correctly use that which you have learned. I find it interesting that James tells us to ask God for wisdom. Why not deliverance? Why not grace? Because we need wisdom so we will not waste the opportunities God is giving us to grow up in faith and move toward the product which is spiritual maturity. In his commentary on James, Warren Wiersbe told of his his secretary in his church who was going through severe trials. Her husband had lost his sight, and she had recently been suffering or suffered a minor stroke. Then her husband grew ill and was rushed to the hospital. Most everyone expected him to pass away. And Wiersbe wrote, I saw her in the church one Sunday and assured her that I was praying for her. And she said, what exactly are you asking God to do? And Wisbury was caught off guard and startled by that question. He says, well, I'm asking God to help you and strengthen you. She said, I appreciate that, but I want you to pray about one more thing. Pray that I'll have the wisdom not to, have, not to waste all this time. Grisby wrote, she knew the meaning of James 1.5 by asking God for wisdom so that her suffering would produce and bring effectiveness and not be wasted. But he gives a warning here in verses 6 and following. He gives a warning and he, notice verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubt. Someone could look at that and say, well, that, that reads nonsense. H- how in the world could we possibly ask for wisdom? I, I have doubts at times. I, I, I struggle. I lack faith. So, so am, I, am I not, God will not hear me, will not answer me? That's not at all what James is saying here. Because if you look in the Bible, throughout the whole record of the Bible, with Moses, with, with Abraham, the giants that we consider the giants of faith, and even the New Testament, we see a whole slew of men and women who had doubts, who, who lacked faith in Christ, and who still was rightly used, and who still God poured out His grace upon. James isn't talking about that here. He's talking about one that is a, a wicked person. Someone who is wicked. The, the, the word double-minded literally translated two-souled, a man with two souls. Two hearts, two directions. James is, is referring to someone here who is constantly changing his allegiance. Someone, a deeper problem with doubt in 
God would answer his, his request. It actually relates to a person who's unwilling to live the will of God. So it's important to understand that, that James isn't referring to someone with honest doubts and even perhaps misdirected sense of humility that assumes God probably has no intention do with answers or prayer. James is describing a person who says he wants God's direction in his life, but in reality, he keeps all his options open. James says, in effect, no one will receive wisdom from God until their option is obedient submission to God. Until then, James, in verse 8, this man is unstable in all his ways. The word unstable comes from a word that, that means not to, to abide or to settle down, not being able to settle down. It carries the idea of never committing in life. He inclines toward God one day and toward the world the next. And then uh, the next few verses, James seems to add an illustration for us of a paradox. Paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, yet perhaps true. When I am weak, then I am strong. Who, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see something similar to that in these next few verses. The richness of poverty and the poverty of riches. It seems to contradict one another. What is James really saying? What is he talking about? needs to consider a high position of sense of God even when life tells him he is anything but a member of God's high and holy family. James is talking to people here that are second class people that have been stained in the past. Relationship scars, financial struggles, disabilities or victims of prejudice. James is saying that, that you're looking at all this the wrong way. Instead of looking at what you don't have and what you've been through, look at what you do have in Christ. Think about it. God has called us His treasure. He considers us kings and priests. Angels consider an honor to minister to our needs. He, we are called joint heirs with Christ. There's nothing second class about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he mentions here that of the rich. James is writing to Jewish Christians, and one problem they had that was prevalent among the Jews was the concept of wealth. They believed the material wealth was a sign of God's blessing in their lives, and the more that they had, the more that they were loved by God. given special treatment oftentimes to those who had money. There were officers in the church that became uh, high up in the church and they could do things just because of their wealth, because of their status. And oftentimes even here in our society, we don't think of rich as being a trial. We look at riches as being the goal, something that we strive for. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 19. 
to his disciples, I'll tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 6, but woe unto you that are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And there are many more passages like that. So what is the Bible teaching us? What is it telling us? Having much is wrong? That it's bad? It is not telling us that having much is bad or that it's wrong, but it is telling us that it's dangerous. Having much is a test. Satan will easily use our riches to get us to trust in ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord, trusting the Lord. Think about an athlete who has a great natural ability, but often maybe fails in professional sport because they are so confident in their ability that they don't feel as though they need to practice or listen to instruction from others. The same person that may be with a great intelligence often may be struggle in the world because they have so much confidence in their intellect that they dismiss the wisdom and counsel of others. And the same way it can be with our riches. We can trust in those that our 401ks can be our security. The, 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 the things that we have, we can be wrapped up in the so much and the things and the stuff that we have and that we can get, but we lose sight on who we really have in Christ. The solution, according to James, is to take pride in our low position. We must daily remind ourselves that everything that we have belongs to Him. We must use what He has given us to give to leads us to the, the next verse and what we what would happen to our riches ultimately what happens to the things the temporal things that we possess here on earth for the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass the flower fails falls and its beauty perishes so also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits but we know what grass is like especially around here in the summer. Uh, in the spring, it starts to come up. In the summer, it's mature. And then as fall comes, it starts to slow down a little bit, and winter hits, it's completely dead. Grass does not last. And, and, and neither does our wealth in this world. Diamonds aren't forever. If you need to have, have money or any things, or things that are temporal, you, you can't take it with us. It's here for a short time. And then James wraps this up in verse 12. With someone who is truly happy, who truly has joy in Christ. What to look for? It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is not implying here that you earn eternal life by enduring suffering. He is saying that the believer can earn a crown, a unique reward for suffering as a Christian. You, you don't choose your crosses, you, you choose your responses. And one day you'll be rewarded every time you choose to become a faith and wisdom. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, 
was once at a conference, and uh, he, he was speaking, and he, he said this while he was there. He once had the opportunity to play with Hounds champion Shecker Hendricks was a young fellow at the time and so confident that he felt he could take on the old veteran. He was given the first move and decided to set the pace. And after a few moves, his opponent put out a piece in the line of fire and said, jump me. And Hendricks did so, scooping up the piece triumphantly off the board. He thought that he had the game in the bag. And his opponent put another piece in jeopardy and said, jump me again. Hendricks happily took the piece and then it happened the old man picked up one of the checkers and jumped 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 his checker hopped down to the board scooping up all four of Hendricks checkers and the old man's checker landed in the king's territory territory and he announced crowning and after that young Hendricks didn't have a chance as piece after piece was taken from him. And then Hendricks said this, no good checker player minds losing an occasional piece. He will do it with joy so long as he knows he's heading to the top. You you can't choose your crisis. You choose your response. And I can't think of a better way to end this here with James effectively saying one day your crosses will be exchanged for a crown. Joseph Scrimmon was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1820. After graduating from Trinity College, he had great expectations and plans. He was engaged to marry his lovely Irish sweetheart, and together they had dreams of building a life and home together. Wedding plans were made, business ventures were decided upon, but the day before their wedding, his fiance drowned in a boating accident. The world fell apart. Joseph moved to Canada attempting to put all the memories and heartaches behind him. Although he was very much alone, he served faithfully as a missionary bachelor driven to share the gospel with those in need of salvation. Years later, tragedy struck again. His mother became seriously ill, and he was unable to be with her. In his absence, he sat down and wrote a poem for her. He scribbled out a couple for himself, and it was later discovered by a visitor. The powerful lyrics not only brought to his mother on her deathbed, but they also were put in music and sung in churches even, even to this day. And the lyrics are this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a a friend so faithful 
through will all our sorrows share. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the emperor. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered by a load of care? Precious Savior, our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, take hope and shield thee. the onlookers of Joseph Scriven would, 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 would seem to have lived a lonely life marred by sorrow. But after his death, also by drowning, his poems that circulated through churches and penetrated the hearts of believers for nearly, nearly two centuries revealed his heart for all to see. He had been content with life for his closest friend. sins, grief, and pain are you bearing? Remember, before Jesus died on the cross for you, he whispered into the ears of his frightened disciples, I consider you my closest friends. No matter what sorrows you carried, my friend, Christ who knows your every weakness will shield and come his disciple, he will also watch over you forever. You know, last year, this time, um, this is our last Sunday of this year, last Sunday of this decade, last Sunday, or, or, or last year at this time, we were wondering what 2019 had in store, the good, the bad, and now to an end, and we've seen how it's all played out. We've seen the hurt, the trials, the good times, the bad, and now as we stand really at the precipice of, of 2020, there awaits a, another journey. Can I just encourage you just, just a moment? You know, I, I can't imagine what it's like go through trials, to go through heartache, and not be a Christian. I, it's hard enough to go through them as a Christian. It's hard enough to go through those things being a Christian. I, I can't imagine not having hope, not having peace, not having comfort, not experiencing joy. Are, are, are there bad times that, that come up, trials that come up? Absolutely. Will we have sorrow? Will we have sadness? Absolutely. But that does not dictate or control who we are in Christ. That is not where our true joy comes from. It doesn't come from our situation. It doesn't come from our situation or circumstances that we find ourselves in. Our true joy comes from Christ. Because we as, as, as believers have hope and have peace. And we know having a
some of the stories. Even when we go through times of trial, heartache, grief, pain, suffering. And there are times that we don't know why it's happening. We ask the question, why? And I pray that that question of why will lead us to the question of who. Who it is that we serve. Because the who will take care of the why. We serve you. You are our God. You are our hope, our refuge, our redeemer. And Lord, there is peace and there is joy and there is comfort found in you. And not in our situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. Like I said, it's hard enough as Christians to go through those things. I can't imagine. If there's someone in here this morning who never trusted you as a Savior, that Lord, they would see their need for you. They would see that that hope, that joy that comes from serving you and following you. Lord, speak to the memory of this service. stand as we